Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we're going to be focusing our attention on gamification. What is it? Why are regulators and investors concerned about it? What are the benefits of it? And most importantly, what are the key things you should be considering from a compliance perspective? In our headline section, we look at Chair Gensler's Spring 2022 Agency Rule List, what it means and the overall impact to the industry. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of Outtakes, where an old compliance violation takes on a brand new look in crypto. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on June 22nd, the SEC announced its Spring 2022 Regulatory Agenda. The report, which includes contributions related to the Securities and Exchange Commission, lists short and long-term regulatory actions that administrative agencies plan to take. About the release, Chair Gensler said, quote, the U.S. is blessed with the largest, most sophisticated, and most innovative capital markets in the world. But we cannot take that for granted. As SEC alum Robert Birnbaum and his team said decades ago, no regulation can be static in a dynamic society. That core idea still rings true today. When I think about the SEC's agenda, I'm driven by two public policy goals, continuing to drive efficiency in our capital markets and modernizing our rules for today's economy and technologies. When I think about the SEC's agenda, I'm driven by two public policy goals, continuing to drive efficiency in our capital markets and modernizing our rules for today's economy and technologies. Doing so will help us to achieve our three-part mission, protecting investors, maintaining fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitating capital formation. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce criticized Chair Gensler's agency rule list, asserting that both the goals and the method for achieving them were flawed. She described the pace and character of the SEC rulemakings as creating dangerous conditions in our capital markets. She said, quote, the agenda continues to shun issues at the core of our mission in favor of shiny objects outside our jurisdiction. We used to focus on companies' disclosure of economically material information. We now focus on disclosure of hot-button matters outside our remit. We once sought to protect retail investors. We now rush to the aid of professional investors. We once worked to help small and emerging companies raise the funds that are their lifeblood. We now work to increase their costs and shrink their investor base. We once hoped to increase the ranks of public companies by making it less costly and more beneficial to the public. We now look for ways to force companies to go public since we are making it costlier to go public and be public. The agenda does contemplate pursuit of some important mission-focused rules, such as updates to the investment advisor custody rules, data security rules for the consolidated audit trail, updates to the electronic record-keeping rules for broker-dealers, and rules to shift from paper to electronic filings. Yet, it drops or, or postpones indefinitely too many others, including transfer agent rules, a joint project with the CFTC to develop uncleared swap portfolio margining rules, rules on investment company securities lending arrangements, and rules to reform proxy plumbing infrastructure and the fund proxy system. Precious regulatory bandwidth is instead devoted to reopening rules that we only recently finished, such as the resource extraction, proxy voting, shareholder proposals, and whistleblower rules, even though we have no new information that could justify revisions so soon, less than two years, after we last considered these rules. Although the agenda includes rules that might regulate crypto protocols or platforms through an unmarked backdoor, it does not appear to include any rules primarily intended to grapple with the main regulatory questions that have arisen around these assets." End quote. Procedurally, Ms. Peirce continues to argue that the agenda deviates from what the, the SEC's ordinary, you know, quote, careful and considered approach to a more hasty and broad-sweeping types of changes that they're focused on now. She continues to express concern that there's no sign of the SEC slowing down on the rulemaking front, and she reported that the agenda reveals many new rules will be proposed within the next five months. Those rules, she warned, would not allow for the kind of comprehensive public feedback that we need due to those time constraints and a lack of necessary resources to give the rule proposals the proper attention they deserve. She then finished by urging the SEC to focus on issues core to the agenda of protecting investors in the operation of the markets and a slower pace 
so that we can allow for sufficient comment periods and allow commenters the proper time to respond to some of these lengthy releases. What's the key takeaway here? I, I think many folks on the compliance side of the house and legal practitioners that are involved in this space have felt like the last six months have been breathless in many respects in how we're trying to respond to the onslaught of rulemaking and trying also to analyze how many of those different and disparate rule proposals will actually work together. And there's simply no way that with all of these rules being proposed by the SEC, that, that all of them can be reasonably and properly vetted by market participants and that a serious cost-to-benefit analysis could be conducted or consideration uh, really you know, properly given as to whether the rules are even within the SEC's statutory authority. I think there's going to be some you know, aspect of uh, the next administration that may have to consider whether we need to even go back to look at, you know, under the current precedent where, you know, it seems like existing rules are being nullified regarding topics like proxy advisors, et cetera, maybe we need to redo the whole rule process all over again in the next administration as well. I hope not. And I hope that in the future, additional time and consideration will be given to market participants so that we can really kick the tires on these rule proposals to uh, develop a thoughtful and considerate response on their impact to the industry. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we are going to be getting into some firsts here on the Compliance and Context podcast. And I'm incredibly excited to welcome in Tanner Dowdy to the show to talk about what is a very uh, hot topic in the compliance realm and one that many, many firms and I would say industry experts are grappling with on the forefront of our industry, which is gamification. But before we get there, I thought I would kick off the episode by giving the audience a little sneak peek into what I found to be emblematic of the overall compliance profession, a sneak peek behind the curtain here into the Securities Compliance Podcast. And although this is the first time you're going to be hearing from Tanner, uh, this is the second time that Tanner has actually been on the Compliance Context Podcast. You see, much like uh, compliance in general, which we've, we've talked about on the show before, we are we are here right to make it better than the way we found it right let's let's elevate the services that our firms provide and it is one of the japanese concept of kaizen right a uh, one of continuous improvement and i was reminded as i tried probably the ninth or tenth different way to edit the prior show i recorded with tanner in a way that was going to make it actually sound like something a human would want to listen to <laughs> that you know what in those situations sometimes uh like in our compliance programs we we need to recognize when it's time to let some of the old policies and procedures go or in this case an old episode and uh start fresh and start new and so tanner uh thank you again for joining me on the podcast even though <laughs> This will be the first time many of our guests get to hear from you, and um, I'm incredibly uh, uh, thrilled to have you come in and talk about such a relevant topic. My introduction to Tanner actually occurred because Tanner, through the University of Cincinnati Law School, worked on an independent research project over the course of the uh, spring 2022 semester, where we got to work together to help uh, develop a lot of these uh, fantastic uh, shows that we've done over the first six months of the year, and a lot of research and writing and coming up with uh, uh, topics that we thought would be really relevant for many of our legal and compliance practitioners uh, listening to the show today. And m much like uh, many of the other uh, folks that I'm lucky enough to work with, uh, no good deed goes unpunished, Tanner. And so very glad to- Twice, uh, twice in my, in my Yeah, exactly. Yeah, twice, two, two times uh, uh, now. But um, no, th thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, uh, for background, Tanner is a rising a third-year law student at the University of Cincinnati with a significant expertise in the securities regulation space and um, on the particular topic of gamification. And I know Tanner 
One of the reasons why I was so excited to initially have you work with me on the podcast was some of that background. But now, obviously, as a guest, I'm I'm incredibly intrigued to hear, you know, t- talk to me a little bit about gamification and, and, you know, your law review article specifically. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear what originally got you interested in the topic and maybe provide a little bit of background just on the topic generally and maybe why you thought it would be uh, uh, such a relevant one today. Sure. And so before I launch in, just want to say thank you again, Patrick, for having me on. This has been a great, great experience helping out with the podcast. Thrilled to be a guest. I'm hoping that uh, for us, you know, they, they say third time's the charm. I'm hoping, you know, second time's the charm here. For us. <laughs> exactly. You, you and so, the most. Yeah. Uh, but so this will be fun. Um, so yeah. Uh, my name's Tanner. I'm going to be a right. I'm a rising 3L at University of Cincinnati College of Law. And my story about how I got interested in gamification really starts with why I even came to law school in the first place. Um, I was a political science and finance undergrad at University of Kentucky. Always been uh, really interested in how our capital markets intersect with rules and regulations and laws. And in law school, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to study. I wanted to expose myself to practitioners and to the classes that would uh, develop my expertise or my competency in understanding how regulations interplay with how capital is allocated in, in the market. And so this was obviously a great opportunity to do so. What I did not anticipate was that um, I would be writing about a topic that would dovetail so great with your practice, Pat. How I got interested in gamification specifically was really just being someone who reads the front page of the Wall Street Journal, someone who just pays attention to the news, right? So in the fall, I I was lucky enough to get invited to be on Law Review. In the fall, I wrote about um, like the NFT craze. Because that was the whole big, uh, big craze in 2021. And then when the spring came around, uh, I, I needed another topic to write about. And so I looked back again. I was like, what was on the front page of the headlines of major news outlets? And it wasn't NFTs. It was Robinhood, GameStop, you know, Dogecoin, To The Moon, these uh, extremely interesting uh, conversations about what was going, going on in the broker-dealer industry. And so I, from there, just started reading and reading. And I came to find out that gamification is a giant rabbit hole with a lot of different, um, you know, touch points that you can dive into. So hopefully we can, we can visit at least half of them. Uh, <laughs> this evening, Pat. I, I think gamification leaves enough on the table to have like two episodes, yeah. but I'm sure your audience is not going to want to hear from me after the first, but uh. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're good. And, and you're right about the topic of gamification. It's like you, you, you open the, the, you, if you open the door, it's, uh, you know, buckle up because you're, you're yeah. going to be, you're going to be in for a long ride. We, we've, certainly talked about the topic on the podcast before. In fact, uh, just last fall ourselves, we had Neil Matra with the SEC's FinHub office and, and Jaime Werke uh, with uh, FINRA's OFI, uh, uh, the Office of Financial Innovation, come on to talk about some of the issues in, in crypto. And, and they talked about gamification as well. And it was a really, really thoughtful and considerate conversation with the regulators on that front. And, and I really appreciated their perspective. So I guess I'll, I'll ask you as we kind of kick off getting into the, the topic proper, mm-hmm. you know, what, why is gamification? You talked about it being in the headlines, right? You talked about it being on the front page. You, yep. you, meant, you mentioned GameStop. So that, that might be a natural starting place too. But I guess, you know, why, why is the topic such a headline maker today? And like, why, why do you think it's so relevant to our financial marketplace? Sure. So I think I think the starting point in answering that question has to be with the importance of the retail investor. You know, securities law and capital markets more generally need to function for every type of individual or firm that wants to raise capital or wants to invest for future generations or for future time. And so part of that that framework has to be accounting for uh, retail investors, the everyday Joe, you know, the people who are just starting out, dipping their toes in capital markets. And I think gamification now, at least for many retail investors, or maybe not gamification in a broad sense, but gamified apps or gamified broker dealer apps will be people's entry point into the capital markets. So as we think about the future of our capital markets, having a conversation about how people enter the capital markets on the retail side is of vital importance because 
even if you end up being someone who allocates capital institutionally, how you first learn or how you first come to perceive the capital markets is going to inform your your outlook, your 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 trading, your perceptions, all of that. So I think in 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 some sense, gamification is about how do people enter the capital markets? And I think that's always an important, important topic because frankly, Pat, I mean, people my age, they all have the app, right? Robin Hood's the easy one to pick on. There's there's other ones out there and they're getting more, they're, they're very powerful. They have a large market share. Um, and even the more traditional brokers, TD Ameritrade, um, Schwab, like all, the ones that we all know from the 2000s, 90s, I mean, they're, they're getting more and more uh, sophisticated with their digital digital interfacing. So I think it's just going to be an ongoing story and it's going to be something that uh, is going to impact how people interact with the markets. My generation, your generation, but definitely the generations below me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that feedback and context. And I do think that's a really unique perspective. And and look, I I know we're going to dig into this further as we talk about the democratization of mm-hmm. finance and what game what gamification can do to help benefit the marketplace and benefit people and i think that's often missed because i think a lot of the headlines will at times focus on some of the more negative aspects of gamification and there are some and they need to be addressed like i don't i don't want to give those short shrift either uh and and make it seem like gamification is a lot more uh rainbows and, 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 and unicorns and happy places. But, but the, at the same time, I do think there are some significant benefits to gamification that, that, that we'll want to work through too. I guess, you know, maybe a good place to start or a place that I, I would maybe, you know, talk about what caused gamification. Like, let's go back to the origin. Let's go to the etymology of what are some of the things that ultimately have led us now to summer of 2022 and where gamification is the significant issue that it is today? Sure, sure. I think that's obviously a very logical place to start. Again, here, there is a bit of a rabbit hole. The game, you know, the evolution of our capital markets in some sense has started since the federal securities well, even before that, but as far as from a federal level, federal securities laws are a huge uh, turning point as far as integrating our capital markets on a national level. But when you look at gamification specifically, and when you really started seeing signs of gamification is the rise of smartphone apps. When everybody has a handheld app at that point, all types of firms, businesses were looking for ways to create new revenue models, to interact with maybe it's customers or maybe it's traders, whatever it is, you know, it could be a speaker like uh, these social media apps. Firms are looking for ways to target people through smartphone apps to collect revenue to scale their businesses. I think that was paired perfectly because so many of these apps are free, not just broker dealer apps now, but with zero commission trading. Um, You had a giant deregulation in the seventies in the broker dealer industry that incentivized competition around commission. Uh, traditionally, broker dealers would collect commission on every trade that they they managed, and that was a, a source of revenue. Uh, it was also a way to gatekeep in a way because not everybody can maybe afford commission. Uh, then there was a change in uh, a change in uh, of thinking, if you will, in the industry that we should incentivize brokers to try to reduce their commission as much as possible. And now we have a pair paradigm in which all of the major players allow people to trade quote unquote for free. Right. And so that is obviously um, when you have something that's just your revenue, you're no longer generating from the trade, then what are you going to generate revenue from? Uh, what are you going to try to target investors for if it's not a low price? If everybody has a zero price on a trade, what can you do to differentiate yourself? Well, an obvious way to do it would be superior interfacing or really sophisticated design, sleep, sleep designs, or maybe it's a very, very addictive algorithm that people can't get off of. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe being a little dramatic there with a very, very addictive, but the same incentives that lead uh, zero price apps like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter to continually reinvest into their R and D or into these um, like technology that tries to hook users is the same incentives that make broker dealers want to uh, invest in 
their own digital interfacing, uh, even if it's a little bit different. So I think I think that is the uh, the key ingredients that led to the current gamification uh, paradigm. Yeah, and I think maybe we we can even define what gamification is. I mean, I think most of your audience knows, but there is certain something to be said that it's basically any digital engagement practice that tries to lure audiences or, or, or even make something more appealing. I mean, there is something to be said, you don't want to be using an app that is just, you know, really dry and unappealing. And there's a strong argument that the websites of old were that way. And so there's, there's something good in having uh, an app that is enjoyable to use, but at what point and at what effects or what, additives, if you will, when does it become detrimental to the investor or violated with the securities laws? Right. No, that's, (laughs) you have, you have really started to unpack this again, this like unending subject matter. It feels like in in a way that I, I, I think and hope our listeners will appreciate because they're very digestible bites. Let's, let's start with like one of the things you talked about that is so true, which is that if you're going to use something and you're actually want to make it something that is going to want to draw people back into it, even if it's like from an educational standpoint, right? Like let's just focus on a positive. If it, if you wanted somebody to read something that had really good information in it or had really good educational materials in it or whatever else, having a really nice like interface, having something that's going to be pleasing to use and easy to kind of, you know, tier and segment, like where you want to go and what you want right. to use it for. That's going to be customizable. Right. Even, to- even if, even if that interface has the risk of serious loss, because pain is an ex- excellent educator. We all sure. you know, don't, don't touch a hot stove. Right. I mean, so right. there is sure. to your yeah. point, Pat, you want something that is really appealing and is educated or uh, is, is very educating, but it is also okay to admit that something might be educating and risky at the same time because risk and can educate. For, for sure. That's a great, that's a great addition and additional context to that point. The flip side, which is again, like even with my own personal anecdotal experience, I know how it did. I mean, everybody that's been on Facebook or any of those other social media apps you don't, and and then you see like some of the Netflix specials that talk about like what those places like Facebook and Google and other places are doing to help continue to like keep you on their sites and to have right. those little tiny drips of endorphins right. and other pleasing things that happen every time somebody likes your post, somebody endorses your, your thing on LinkedIn. I mean, like all those other little things like those constantly are, refreshing feeds. They never go away. Like yeah, all constantly that. refreshing feeds. That's exactly right. To keep you drawing you in and to keep you engaged. Now imagine all of, like you just said, like all of those same, I'll call them uh, incentives. 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 That's yeah. right. A- appetizers, stuff that, that keeps, if that was done by brokerage firms to encourage you to trade more. Right. right. And, and there are, again, there are, there are benefits to that. I definitely want more people to, to participate in the capital markets. And we, you know, we'll talk about some of the democratization stuff here in a little bit. Cause I, one of the key things, one of the key questions I want to ask you next gets into some of the research that you did and what you discovered, but there is that element of like bringing the capital markets to the masses where I think before it's felt like kind of an exclusive club that's only for certain people. And I like the fact that we can broaden that a lot and we can encourage and facilitate more capital market participation at the same time, right? That there's, there's a, um, a juxtaposition there uh, with that against protecting, you know, uh, right. uh, the consumer. And well, Patrick, anytime there's increased democratization, there's a destabilizing effect. Um, and I, and, before we jump into the uh, the kind of the nitty gritty, if you will, of some of these actual engagement practices and what's going on, I think a, another way to analogize, just think about what happened with maybe even uh, in, a, in a broader sense, the politics or the Arab Spring and the social media apps. 
But in the same way that digital brokerages democratize financial uh, transactions, social media apps democratize social trans- transactions. And you, it's, you can, it's 24 seven. You can basically tweet or, or type whatever you want, what you're feeling at anyone, very much a open public square, uh, open access. And that is good because it democratizes speech. Um, and it, in a sense, levels the market for speech and it amplifies voices that otherwise weren't. So to here with, with uh, digital brokerages, we have investors that are now amplified in ways now that they weren't. But there is a destabilizing effect to that when you ripple it throughout the economy, especially if the underlying substructure maybe isn't quite ready for it or there's a more dark side to it, if we might get to later, uh, it kind of ties into the whole PFOF debate. Yeah. But you're right in that there are a lot of analogs between um, social media apps and Robinhood and how speech is allocated throughout society and then how like our money and capital is allocated throughout society. So, so let's... Then, Okay. Okay. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I mean, if you were ready, I would, I mean, we can, we can keep talking theory or we can pivot to more. (laughs) No, man, this is, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and you've already touched on what are some wonderful themes that from a, a compliance perspective for, for all of my, my legal and compliance friends that are listening to, to dig into, I guess, but you just talked about a key element of, the destabilization point. And that's probably one of the things that it, if we're going to use an example, right. That like kind of happened with the GameStop. Yes. Uh, Let's uh, get into that. I agree. All right. all right. So, so talk to us, what, what happened with GameStop and why was it such a major market event? Sure. So GameStop was really, was really the, the triggering event that made gamification popular. But what happened is, and I'm not a hundred percent on all the details before January, but basically it goes like this GameStop was not a great value stock to own. I, I mean, I don't think it had modified its business strategy much, uh, with the whole streaming gaming craze. I think it was still very much a brick and mortar type video game seller. It, it was and, the, blo- it was the blockbuster video. Right, it was the blockbuster video <laughs> games perfectly yeah. set Pat. So yeah. Anybody who is more is looking at like inherent value in a stock or something that you think the price will appreciate over time, GameStop's not where you want to dump your capital. And that though did not sit well. And this is where it's fascinating that the brokerages are there's almost like a synergizing effect with social media. That didn't sit well with Reddit users <laughs> or some some of these users on social media. They got wins that there were some major institutional players and hedge funds that were had short positions, sometimes even very large short positions on GameStop or some of these other stocks um, that are quote unquote meme stocks and the Wall Street bets, uh, Reddit thread, and and even on other social media platforms, it became almost this rallying cry to save GameStop from the the big bad uh, evil. It was very much of Main Street versus Wall Street. Main Street versus Wall Street. Kind of populism versus elitism baked in there. So it was very much a a phenomenon with a storyline that goes beyond just finance. But the financial story is that they caused a, a short squeeze and the price appreciated almost 2000% in a matter of a month. And there were some hedge funds that had to liquidate significant amount of their portfolios, if not probably almost all, I'm not sure on all the details there, but it was a huge financial story in that it, it saved, it saved uh, GameStop, which was a company that otherwise probably should have been defunct or suffering. So what caused that amount of trading? It doesn't seem rational to put money in GameStop. So why were people behaving quote unquote irrationally? One story is that, uh, again, the whole populism, but another is that it, there was a firestorm of, if you will, of people hopping on brokerage apps that allowed zero commission trading and riding a bubble, like a momentary bubble on a stock and speculating. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was very much almost a tsunami wave that made it evident that there are underlying forces baked into our capital market structure that if the conditions got right, could be very volatile, could make certain stocks very volatile um, and, and dangerously volatile um, because yeah. we saw Robinhood had to shut down their operations because the clearing houses had margin calls that the brokerage, the, I think Robinhood, maybe other brokerages, again, I'm not sure, but the margin calls were the reason why that 
trading was frozen. But anytime trading is frozen, as this, as if I'm sure the audience yeah. remembers, that is a very drastic, like, whoa, like what is going on? You know, our capital markets, you know, ostensibly they should never freeze. And they should, they certainly, if you're a pro-democracy guy or, or girl, they shouldn't be someone who, they shouldn't be freezing on the people who are most vulnerable in a sense, our retail sure. traders. Sure. So if our securities laws want to protect retailers, then, you know, we should be freezing them out from being able to participate uh, is I guess what I was, what I was trying to say is just a lot more sloppily. So, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. That, that's all super helpful context. And, and I guess then in light of kind of the, the GameStop as an example of one of the things that people might say or attribute uh, gamification having some role in that, you know, what were, when you were doing your research on the law review article, what were some of the key themes that you, you know, talked that, that, that you found, right? Like what were some of the things that really stuck? I think we probably already touched on one of them, uh, but I would love to hear you kind of describe that in your own words and then maybe, uh, you know, describe a couple of the other key, key themes that you saw. Sure. I think so. My, my law review article actually ended up taking more of an antitrust bit, which is interesting. I think the underlying uh, factors or, or, or triggers that led to gamification are market structural issues and also dark patterns or are our algorithms and our digital engagement practices becoming so strong in a way they're almost becoming anti-competitive. Um, and there's a lot of literature, academic literature, um, even some regulatory discussion about at what point uh, does misallocated capital that arises from you know gamifying our psychology, when does that become anti-competitive? So that's almost more of an aside. You know, obviously we don't have to talk about antitrust, but I think the market structure and the dark patterns, dark patterns meaning all the things that are baked into apps are, are the two uh, two main themes. And so, when you get into the what's actually being put on the apps, it would look like recommendation algorithms, push notifications, eye candy. So we all know about you know the confetti, or it doesn't even have to be confetti. It could be really unique uh, colors or like flashes or now like uh, emo emojis, you know, that could be eye candy, surprise stock rewards. You sign up for a, an app, they give you a free stock engagement devices, uh, like premium offerings or uh, leaderboards. So there's a leaderboard of, Hey, this XYZ stock is trading more than anything. And maybe they pair their leaderboard with a push notification, uh, with fire emojis within the push notification. <laughs> and the push notification is algorithm to alert you 10 times a day, right? So there's layers to this, but I think uh, all of those engagements are to varying levels bad or, or, or good. Well, so, so the, what you just described though, like those example, like, you, you just basically got into the the specific examples of gamification, right? Yes. I mean, like like the 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 algos and the push notifications and the eye candy, the the you know that when the confetti pops because you made a trade and and then or again like those surprise stock awards, all of those kinds of things. Those are the specific examples. The gamification and and how. I think a re a more retail audience and say more your sophisticated or institutional finance audience is being engaged. What what do you think about that? I mean, like just in general, right? With some of those examples of gamification that that you described, do you think that you know should should we be? I think I you know saw a statistic that that like you know retail investors now make up a, a very significant portion of the entire trading volume generally, maybe like a quarter. Yes, um, I, I think uh, it, I think it is around a quarter, Pat. Yeah. That being said, should we encourage gamification because it's going to continue to increase the democratization of trading or should we be weary of it because of, you know, some of the, the pitfalls that could come along alongside it. Sure. I think uh, in a very lawyerly, I'm going to give a lawyerly answer here. We should encourage gamification only as insofar it does not harm retail investors because securities law definitely, even if retail investors lose on trades, that's okay. But if the gamification, if you can draw a causal link, and this is, you know, the, the billion dollar question, the causal link between gamification 
and um, either capital misallocation, consumer harm, best interest violations. You know, we can kind of get into that uh, because that's a pretty logical place to start when you think about how could gamification and some of these uh, engagement practices run afoul of securities law uh, aims and policies. So I think we should be skeptical. I will say myself personally here, I am actually skeptical that securities law can have a really robust response here uh, as far as like in a fiduciary sense. I think the line drawing and the slippery slope problems are really hard to get right, um, especially when securities law already has tons of disclosure obligations and you know transactional costs that that uh, you know your clients Pat have to deal with. I'm trying to figure out if Confetti is really recommending a trade to someone, especially when that someone can be completely different from another person. You know, yeah. it's not it's not like every customer on Robinhood is made the same. It's not like everybody responds to the the same stimuli. So I'm not even sure it's really wise to start getting into the weeds. And then as, as an aside to that, uh, there's literature that warns about getting into the weeds for first amendment reasons that um, if you get too, too specific, if you get too, uh, sen- uh, if you start censoring too heavily as some of these firms, because the first amendment jurisprudence has gotten pretty broad about what's protected by companies and corporations, they could start suing saying that, Hey, you know, they're, they're violating our free speech. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a whole thicket there that, that screws law needs to avoid. However, I do think there are some, some limited like available means uh, of, of, of regulating this or some options, some options of, of regulating this. I think, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say like, when, when you think about what some of those, because it does feel like we are in completely uncharted territory here, right? Like this is a problem right. that for the overwhelming majority of the history of the markets, you know, we, we have not, necessarily had to deal with but but what are some things that you think might help as far as you know like getting into ultimately if i'm an investor and like you said there's going to be such a wide difference between what's going to affect somebody to want to trade more and like start you know whatever else versus somebody else in the same way that people use facebook differently then people use LinkedIn differently than people use any name, name, whatever social media app or other gamified app on your phone that people, you know, Wordle, whatever, like, I, you know, like, like there's a million different things, but what are some ways that you think at least would be a, a, a place to like a, a, a kicking off point? Right. There, there's definitely room for disagreement here, but I think that looking at recommendation, uh, regulation, so specifically Reg BI, is a great place to start. And then you start looking at line by line each engagement practice, DEP, digital engagement practice, looking line by line at each one and almost having a common sense approach to it and thinking, you know, does this seem a little predatory? Does this seem like you are tailoring or, you know, souping up the technology to really target someone as if it's like a call to action to start trading? And I think that's where the, the dark patterns that are created by algorithms are mm-hmm. probably a little more circum uh, or questionable than the confetti noise, right? Or, yeah. you know, the colors or the noises. I think constant push notifications that maybe cross-reference leaderboards probably seems probably seems a little more predatory, if you will, yeah. than um, a confetti noise. Uh, just to go back to the confetti noise, I think looking at the language of Reg BI, even I mean Reg BI, one of the requirements is quantitative suitability. You know, so the broker needs to assess whether it is reasonable a series of recommendations were made with the best interest of the broker and not with the interest financial or otherwise of the broker. I think something we always think about the broker's financial interests paramount, but the language of Reg BI says financial or other interest. So what could the other interests, what other interests could be involved here besides financial interests of the broker? How about screen right. time? Right. How about screen right. time? You know, just because you go on Robinhood doesn't mean you affect a trade. And like I was saying, gamification is a way to grab screen time. There's a whole uh, dearth of literature about zero price firms, trying to race to get the most screen time. You know, Facebook is competing with Instagram for, for screen time. 
uh, Robinhood, even if not all of their users, and not just Robinhood, again, other brokerages, but any of these zero price or zero commission brokerages that are digital, they are trying to compete for screen time. And because there is, again, tons of evidence that the more and more you use an app that has sophisticated technology, or even if you've had an app for a while, you become entrenched, you get used to it, you like it, and you're less likely to move to another broker or to another uh, competing service provider, right? What if it's outside the financial industry? So perhaps from a quantitative suitability perspective, if you're throwing in these intense recommendations, you know, baked up with these algorithms, even if you're not getting an easily identified easily identifiable financial gain from it. You might be getting a screen time, screen time gain from it. So yeah. these are just creative solutions that I've thought about. There's, I think reg BI is a great place to start. I think there are some people who would argue we should take a sledgehammer, get rid of PFOF because PFOF is, uh, and the broker dealer structure as it currently sits is what really is, is incentivizing people to, gamify their apps. So, so, so just to, for our audience, for those that may not be familiar sure. with PFOF, what, what is PFOF and how is it something, what, what, what is, um, what is it about PFOF that is obviously so attractive to brokers? Sure. So PFOF is an acronym for payment for order flow and payment for order flow is a revenue model that is not extremely new, but relatively new, but now become very commonplace where digital broker dealers such as Robinhood um, and other brokers will literally sell their order flow or pass off their order flow to a third party wholesaler or you know, high frequency trading firm. I know uh, Citadel is commonly uh, cited to as an example of a firm that does this. Those firms will execute the trades oftentimes off exchange and take advantage of their infrastructure to uh, price arbitrage. And uh, the SEC has had a lot of uh, worries that this, this model does not provide for best execution for a non-negligible amount of retail investors or a, a, a decent amount of retail investors. And so, so long as digital brokerages are in a sense harvesting all of these, we'll call them you know, noisy trades. Um, I'd like to cite to uh, James Tierney's law review article here, his main thesis, it's called investment games. It'll be in the Duke Law Journal, is that gamification is really all about uh, farming. It's digital farming for noisy trades that are not sophisticated trades. And they are being resold to these high frequency trading firms that are price arbitraging because there's uh, because our national market standard uh, tries to get one single price at one single moment in time for various exchanges. So there's an opportunity there if you have superior infrastructure to literally race to try to just make pennies off bid ask spreads and. Um, so and it's profitable yeah. for people like Robinhood, right? They can sell, they can get these uh, these. Uh, paybacks from really sophisticated firms and make a lot of money doing it. So there are people who would probably take a sledgehammer and say, we need to get rid of PFOF, but yeah, well, yeah. And there's, you, you've identified a couple of key things and I, I want to revisit them, especially for, you know, our, our audience, it's going to be more focused on the, the, the compliance part and some of the key things that you said that are right. just like, so man, like they're just so important. I mean, Think of how there are multiple elements of like, you've got churning on one sense with the gamification and stuff that could occur at, at the retail level. But then you've got like kind of another variation of that with the PFOS stuff at the, at the brokerage level. And, right. and the fact that they're going to want to continue to dramatically increase the number of trades that are happening because they're, they're making money off of, off of some of the arbitrage that's occurring, you know, and, and going back, I think another key thing, and I don't want to um, kind of gloss over it because you, you did give such wonderful examples of gamification. Again, for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar, 
Those can be, you know, recommendation algorithms that are built into the applications to tell you, oh, like, oh, you bought this stock. You may also be interested in this and you may also be interested in that. Obviously, any of the push notifications like, you know, ABC company stock is trading at an all time high right now. Rocket ship fire emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, some of the eye candy and some of the other stuff like as you described in these, you know, DEPs, the digital digital engagement practices are so commonplace. But I think more and more the way that I think, you know, for compliance officers, legal practitioners at investment advisor and broker dealer firms that are dealing with these issues, you, you need to be on the lookout. And I think it's important to stay on top of some of these key ways that, again, as the democratization of finance continues to grow stronger, which I'll raise my own hand and say, I'm all in favor of that. And I'm all in favor of that in a way where I'm hoping that in the same way that like, you know, for me personally, Atari and then Nintendo, I I had four older siblings. So I was more Nintendo than Atari, but I, and if those things even, uh, I'm hoping they, those names ring a bell for you. You're so young though. I'm not even sure if that's <laughs> going to happen, but, but like the way that Atari and Nintendo influence an entire generation to come up growing, I mean, growing up with video games and being engaged in that and kind of getting excited about that. I'm hoping some of these applications can do the same thing for an entire population of people that will want to engage in the capital markets and better understand how they work. And there are significant benefits to that, uh, certainly, and you've articulated some of them. I guess, you know, as we kind of start to think about it, again, thank you so much for providing such valuable insight. One of the, the final items I'd love to kind of pick your brain on with regard to this topic is, where do we go from here? I mean, like, what, you know, what are some of the things that you think are going to start to play out. Do you envision the regulators getting more involved um, given kind of what's happening? Again, we had a couple of folks from both the SEC and FINRA on the podcast in the fall, and they both indicated that this was something that they were looking into. But as you articulated a little bit earlier, gosh, the, the experience that someone can have with regard to those same you know, uh, rocket emoji <laughs> on a particular stock or, you know, the um, uh, confetti coming down when they place yeah. a trade that can have such a dr- dramatically different effect, depending on the type of investor. H- how does even the, re- how, do, how do even the regulators start to build guardrails in this space? If you think they can. Yeah, I think, so I think it's low hanging fruit, but you got to keep talking about it. I think having conversations and learning how people like what their experiences are on the app. I mean, you know, if, if there's a lot of feedback, it's like, Oh my gosh, I got so annoyed by so many uh, push notifications. I deleted the app, you know, um, or you get, man, everybody in my, in my circle was, was checking Reddit, speculating heavily. And and those conversations have already been had, obviously, but I think continuing to talk about this, just like there is a popular conversation emerging about social media companies and the role that they, they provide, I think continuing to talk about it is great. I think a second thing to keep in mind is salience bias, which is a psychological phenomenon that whatever comes front in mind or whatever is presented to you last, you will have a bias to avert your attention to. And as regulators think about what is more predatory to consumers or retail traders, especially retail traders who are less sophisticated. I mean, let's, you know, let's face it. I, I'm pretty sure the literature is pretty clear that um, left on their own, just speculating and trading as a retail investor, you probably do worse off, or at least you have in the last 50 years. And if you just, put money in a passive risk managed ETF. Right. And, you know, maybe, sure. maybe I think that that's the case either way, the risks are, are there when it comes to trading uh, on your own. And I think anything that exploits a retail investor's salience bias overtly, and that's where I go back to the algorithms, the constant push notifications, I would expect, certainly under this administration, uh, the current administration, those things to be 
more uh, frowned upon. And if there's going to be rulemaking around it, it would be around that. I, I'm not sure there will be, um, I, I can't, you know, looking at my crystal ball here, <laughs> right. I, I do think some of this has, has frankly died down a little bit. I think 2021, it was crazy. It was all over the headlines. I think 2022, uh, hasn't been as much, uh, perhaps that has to do with, you know, Robin Hood's been hit with some fines. Their share price isn't probably succeeding as much as, uh, maybe initial forecast it had thought, Whatever the reasons are, I, I do think there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a die down in popular chatter, but I don't think it needs to end. And I do think that anything that is more of a substructure of the app, the stuff that's the, the algorithm stuff seems to me more on the chopping block than aesthetics. I think securities law shouldn't be diving into aesthetics. And I, I don't expect it to. I think mm. salience bias versus aesthetics. You know, um, if you are using... And this is where you got to get a lot of different industries involved here, because I don't know the first thing about algorithms or tech underlying technology, but we know there's a lot of strong stuff out there. And so if, if any of that is, is getting into the apps, which it is, <laughs> then that is what I think would be certainly more on the chopping block. Um, definitely under this administration, under Chair Gensler, um, but even under future ones, even if there's a, a change. So, yeah. Um, no, that's I, I look, I think what I imagine is going to continue to happen. And I think there are significant benefits to this is I think that many brokers like because here's something that, again, just like Robinhood, I think, does a great service to the industry because like we've talked about, you know, they have made investing um, and brought it to meet people where they are, which may not be, you know, someone that has six or seven or eight figures in their bank account and that they can just hire an investment advisor firm and, you know, run their brokerage accounts. Right. Like I, I like the fact that they are able to, again, encourage and, and do in fact, to encourage more and more people to play in the capital markets. So I think, and I hope that there's a continued push towards bringing more people in, educating them on what it is and making the experience you know, pleasurable, like not something that's frustrating. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want them to go to make it feel like they're, you know, having it's just a super plain vanilla, like old school, you know, it issue when they're trying to go through and, and look at their accounts or whatever else. At the same time, you do want to be careful because in the same way uh, that people get that little drop of dopamine, Every time somebody likes their post on Facebook or, you know, every time somebody, um, you know, sends them a message on LinkedIn or whatever, I mean, then you want to be careful that you're not now going to all of a sudden get into some of those potential harms that you talked about. And here's the other thing, Pat, is I would say to your point originally about leaving room for gamification, I think two counterpoints that come to my mind, top of mind are the GameStop thing. Like, would this debate have even happened if GameStop would have never happened? Right. Maybe, maybe GameStop was just an anomaly. Maybe, and, and maybe mm -hmm. this is like an overcorrection for something that truly was uh, yeah. an anomaly. And then you could ask, why was it an anomaly? Well, maybe uh, this was bound to happen as our, capital markets and our communication networks through social media become even more interconnected. So it's growing pains. So like you can see that this is a long arc of positive to your point that we're bringing more people in, but to think that there was going to be smooth sailing the whole time and no hiccups in the road is pretty naive. Right. It's, I, such, a, it, it's such a great point. No, it really is. It's yeah. such a great so point. perhaps 2021 was just a year of growing pains. Like if you are a gamification, like you're a pro gamification and not a, a skeptic, you know, you lean more towards, you know, pro Robin hood. If we could use that lingo, I think those are two counterpoints you can immediately bring to mind. It's like, Hey, look, yeah. GameStop hasn't happened since. Okay. Is, would we even be talking about this if GameStop didn't happen? And they do provide a good service. They bring people in all in all price discovery and liquidity is still better than it's, it's been in years past or, or right. you know, decades, decades sure. past, right. They're, they're bringing people in and they're, they're, um, 
Yeah. So I think, I think those are all great points. And, and again, it's kind of like the write out point, right? <laughs> write it out. Don't overcorrect. And, uh, yeah, but I yeah. guess if you're a compliance professional, you would, you would like some overcorrection because it, <laughs> well, well, sometimes, yeah, no, yeah. I, mean, I, I think, I think, look, you, you touch on, you touch on a couple really key points there. And what I think compliance professionals and legal practitioners are most interested in is if there's going to be something that's dramatically going to impact the services that they're providing clients. And I think some elements of gamification are going to be part of that, their, their clients overall interaction with the marketplace. It's something that we need to be aware of and, and try to hopefully build the right guardrails around. And look, you've given us some wonderful, not only, background on the key issue, examples of the kinds of gamification that can be impactful and that folks should certainly be considering as they're developing well and trying to educate their own advisors, meeting with their clients about the kinds of things to, to be cautious about. And I think giving us some insight into probably what the future looks like a little bit as far as what's coming down the road and, and what firms might be might want to start doing to help prepare for that moment. So Tanner, look, we're, for all of the listeners out there, I'm very excited to see the article whenever it gets published. Uh, I'll, I'll let you do a quick plug. When, when When is the article getting published? It'll be in the spring of 2023. So okay. I have I, my, my NFT article is being published in October. And then the the following couple issues, yeah. it'll, it'll be in the spring. I'm not, I'm not sure the exact uh, month yet, but, well, you know, may, maybe some... Uh, some news headlines will pop up or maybe this will kind of reemerge. I'm really interested too, to see if I could go anywhere with uh, some of the antitrust like topics I explored with it too, because there is a, an increasing concentration in the broker industry that uh, is what kind of inspired yeah. that, that angle is that there's yeah. a, a certain amount of, of firms and like wholesalers that are converging and dominating the market. And obviously our social media apps get antitrust attacks all the time. Yeah. Um, so could we see just like we saw these destabilizing forces in our social media apps, could we see, and then antitrust accusations, could we see destabilizing forces and antitrust accusations in our perfect dealer markets? So yeah. that yeah. was kind of the, the, the impetus, if you will, of that paper. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing how it continues to develop. Uh, most of it's done, but it'll be published in the spring. So maybe there'll be some edits and additions. Well, we will for sure here at the podcast, uh, make sure to send out a, an update uh, for uh, for for everybody, for all of our listeners, uh, when it does get published. And again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today to really dig into this crazy important topic and um, one that I'm sure will continue to grab headlines here for uh, for months and years to come. Before we let you go, because we never let anybody go on the show uh, just talking about the technical <laughs> stuff here. You oh, know, gosh. We're, we're, we're in the middle of summertime. You know, there's a lot of folks who may, maybe want to get a, a quick break. Some of the, the, the summer heat, you know, after going or, or maybe they're just trying to decompress after a, a vacation. I, I don't know, say uh, if they've got, you know, three kids ages four and a half and under, not that I'm, Sounds familiar. Yeah, right. Exactly. But maybe what's what's a really great uh, either movie or TV show that uh, you've been getting into lately that that uh, is one that that you've enjoyed? Man, great question. So my all time favorite TV show is Mad Men. Um, So I will always take the opportunity to plug Mad Men because I think it's a great, (laughs) great show. A lot of cultural statements on it. It's a slow burner, but great set, great characters, uh, great script. A movie, if you are your age with with young kids and you're looking for a way to get away. You know what? My girlfriend and I watched Midnight in Paris the other night. It's about, it's a, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Blonde hair. Owen, maybe. Oh, what's what's his name? Uh, anyway, I, I forgot the name. He goes back in time in Paris in the 20s with Hemingway. Is it, I, it's, uh, it's Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. Thank you. I knew it was Owen. Uh, for some reason, this is the one that comes to my mind right now. 
it's 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 a good flick. It's a good one with a significant other, and it's got some history in there. You can tell I'm a history buff with Madman and Midnight <laughs> yeah. Paris. But good. it's yeah, it's kind of like a rom com meets history, and and it's got a really good uh, really good story. So. Well, Tanner, again, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate all of the incredible insight. Thank you again for coming on the show and uh, would love to have you on the show here at some point down the road. Can't thank you enough, Patrick. This has been really fun. And uh, if, if I do happen to get an invite, I will certainly jump to the opportunity. The final part of today's show features another segment of Outtakes. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, if compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at entertaining, sometimes humorous, and always unsettling activities carried out at other financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to avoid a similar compliance breakdown inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. In case you've been buried in the sand, hopefully on vacation, maybe, or for the last two months, cryptocurrencies have been constantly in the news, including on this podcast. And one of those key storylines has been how crypto how the crypto ecosystem deals with the headaches that the world of traditional finance tackled decades ago on the compliance front, specifically around bank runs and insider trading. Today, we're going to focus on the latter. And in an article entitled, Crypto Might Have an Insider Trading Problem, thank you, David Summers II, on the nod to the article, authors Ben Foldy and Caitlin Ostroff of the Wall Street Journal indicate that public data suggests that several anonymous crypto investors profited from inside knowledge of when tokens would be listed on exchanges. As many of our listeners know, insider trading laws under the Securities Act bar investors from trading stocks or commodities on material non-public information, MNPI, such as knowledge of a coming listing or merger offer. Over the six days last August, one crypto wallet amassed a stake of $360,000 worth of Gnosis coins a token tied to an effort to build blockchain-based prediction markets. On the seventh day, Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange by volume, said in a blog post that it would list Gnosis, allowing it to be traded among its users. Token listings typically add both liquidity and a stamp of legitimacy to the token, and often provide a boost to a token's trading price. The price of Gnosis rose sharply from around 300 bucks to 410 bucks within an hour of the announcement. The value of Gnosis traded that day surged to more than seven times its seven-day average. Four minutes after Binance's announcement, the wallet began selling down its stake, liquidating it entirely in just over four hours for slightly more than $500,000, netting a profit of about $140,000 and a return of roughly 40%, according to an analysis performed by Argus Inc. Argus is a firm that offers companies software to manage employee trading. The same wallet demonstrated similar patterns of buying tokens before their listings and selling quickly after with at least three other tokens. As I mentioned earlier, you're seeing the crypto ecosystem, which of course continues to increase in popularity, now having to grapple with, again, some of the same headaches that the world of traditional finance has tackled over decades. The focus comes as regulators are starting to raise more questions about the market's fairness for retail users, many of whom just booked and continue to book major losses in the crypto space. The wallet buying Gnosis was among 46 that Argus found had purchased a combined $17.3 million worth of tokens that were listed shortly after on Coinbase, Binance, and FTX. The wallet's owners can't be determined through the public blockchain. Profits from sales of the tokens that were visible on the blockchain totaled more than $1.7 million. The true profits from the trades, however, is probably even higher, because several chunks of the stakes were moved from the wallets into exchanges rather than traded directly for stablecoins or other currencies, Argus said. Argus focused only on wallets that exhibited repeated patterns of buying tokens in the run-up to a listing announcement and selling soon after. The analysis flagged trading activity from February 2021 through April 2022. This data was then reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. 
Coinbase, Binance, and FTX each said they had compliance policies prohibiting employees from trading on privileged information. Binance and FTX said they reviewed the analysis and determined that the trading activity in Argus's report didn't violate their policies. Binance's spokesperson also said none of the wallet addresses were linked to its employees. Coinbase said it conducts similar analyses as part of its attempts to ensure fairness, and Coinbase executives have posted a series of blogs touching on the issue of front-running. Quote, there is always the possibility that someone inside Coinbase could, wittingly or unwittingly, leak information to outsiders engaging in, a, in illegal activity. Coinbase uh, chief Brian Armstrong wrote that in April of, of this year. Coinbase's chief legal officer, Paul Grewal, followed up with a blog post in, at near the end of May, indicating that the company had seen information about listings, about listings leak before announcements through traders detecting digital evidence of exchanges testing a token before a public announcement, he said. Coinbase has taken steps to mitigate that in addition to its effort to prevent employee insider trading. Wallets like these have caused debate in the crypto community over whether targeted buying of specific tokens ahead of listings on exchanges points to insider trading. The crypto markets are largely unregulated right now. We all know that, and in fact, we've talked about it in multiple arenas on some of our prior pods. In recent years, regulators have looked more closely at the market's fairness for individual investors. The largest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, has experienced significant losses over the last several months, causing, obviously, significant uh, hardship for individual investors across the market. So, while some lawyers say that existing criminal statutes and other regulations could be used to go after those trading cryptocurrencies with private information, others in the cryptocurrency industry say that a, a lack of case precedent specific to crypto insider trading has created uncertainty over whether and how regulators might seek to tackle it in the future. Argus, this, the company that uh, performed this testing uh, uh, that resulted in, in a lot of the information we have today, their CEO, Owen Rappaport, said that internal compliance policies in crypto can be undercut by a lack of clear regulatory guidelines, the libertarian ethos of many who work in the space, and the lack of institutionalized norms against insider trading in crypto compared with those in more traditional finance. Quote, firms have real challenges with making sure the code of ethics against insider trading, which almost every firm has, is actually followed rather than being an inert piece of paper, Mr. Rappaport said. SEC Chairman Gensler said Monday that he saw similarities between the influx of individual investors into crypto markets in the stock boom of the 20s that precedes the Great Depression, uh, which led, of course, to the creation of the SEC and its mandate to protect investors. Spokespersons for the exchanges continue to say that they have policies in place to help ensure their employees can't trade off of sensitive information. And the uh, one of the Binance, uh, Binance spokeswoman said that the employees actually have a 90-day hold on any investments they make and that the leaders in the company are mandated to report any trading activity on a quarterly basis. All of that said, I think it's clear that as cryptocurrencies continue to come into the fold of the regulator's focus and related regulatory regimes, compliance officers and legal practitioners would do very well to remember that just because the thing being traded might be new or novel doesn't mean the violative activity is different or can't occur. And certainly any existing RIAs active in the crypto space should be on the lookout for this type of activity so that you can avoid the same in your own compliance programs. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Tanner Dowdy, for providing his keen insights on the issue of gamification and its impact to the industry. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 